0: Plus, all community members are real, verified kids just like yours. There are no bots, trolls, or AI. Because Zigazoo is about one thing and one thing only. And that is fun. Try out Zigazoo this spring break and let your kids share your vacation vlogs and best edits with their friends safely. Download the Zigazoo app today. That's Z-I-G-A-Z-O-O.
1: Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Welcome to Stuff You Should Know from HowStuffWorks.com.
2: Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark. With me, as always, is Charles W. Chuck Bryant, and that makes this Stuff You Should Know kind of a special edition, really. We don't usually, like, hop on news stories. Yeah, you can't ignore this stuff. And I guess probably releasing something like a full week after it happens Isn't um, is not problem. hopping on, but right. still.
4: No, it's, uh, people have concerns, and uh, there's a lot of information flying around. Everyone's trying to explain this thing in the simplest terms,
2: and since that's what we
4: do for a living, yeah, we figure we should do it.
2: Yes, so that's what we're doing today. We're going to talk about um, nuclear meltdowns and uh, how it pertains to the crisis in Japan, right?
4: Yeah, and it's a lot more basic and simple than i thought. Yeah, i was intimidated here. going into this and then i was like, oh, well that's not too hard to understand.
2: Yeah, it is nuclear science, but it's kind of approachable nuclear science. Agreed. So, Chuck, um let's talk about cat- catastrophe modeling. Okay. It's a type of risk modeling that insurance companies love. It's how they figure out why your insurance should be less than say somebody else uh, of the same age, weight, height, right. that kind of thing who lives in California, right? Right. Um, My former self. Yeah. Yeah. So you can actually um, take a a catastrophe model, right, and plug in every variable you can think of. And what you'll spit out is um, basically a a curve, a graph of probability of an accident happening. Right. And then say like the the level of damage that will happen. Okay. Okay? So if you do this over, like, say, a 10,000-year catalog, you can figure out how often, say, a 9.0 earthquake is going to hit Japan. Gotcha. And you can figure that out by choosing a probability. Mm -hmm. Let's say there's 4% probability of a 9.0 happening. Okay. You can find that that pops up maybe 40 times over a 10,000-year scale. Mm Mm-hmm. And what you have then is that that's a 1 in 250-year probability. Okay. That's where they get the predictor? Yeah, exactly. And that's why um, power plants are – that's how they're built, to withstand something like a a once-in-a-250-year quake. Saying it could happen in this area, so we need to account for it. Right. And it's based on the dynamics, the geophysical dynamics of an earthquake of a 9.0 magnitude, right? Right. Because you've got all that plugged in in the model. Mm -hmm. You figure out how much – how bad it's gonna be, how often it's gonna happen, and then you build accordingly. And these, uh, the plants on the north coast of Japan, the, uh, TEPCO's Tokyo Electric Power Company, right? Right. Uh, their, uh, Daiichi and Daini plants, um, number one and number two plants in Fukushima, um, were built to withstand a 250 year quake, which is exactly what they got on March 11th. Yeah, they were, and they withstood it. They did. Everything went fine. Uh-huh. They the, shut down the, the uh, reactors, mm-hmm. which is what's supposed to happen. Toot sweet. And, but the problem was it, it withstood an earthquake, a huge earthquake, um, possibly the most massive earthquake that's ever hit Japan. But it didn't withstand the tsunami. It, this model, whatever the model it was built for, did not predict the tsunami. It right. didn't take it into account. And that's why we have this, this crisis right now, right? Yeah. So we should probably also mention that the the focus right now is on um you know this nuclear potential nuclear meltdown but um I mean the tsunami's up to like I think 15,000 dead and missing now just from the tsunami alone
4: Are they calculating the tsunami different from the earthquake as far as that goes
2: I read tsunami okay so possibly
4: cuz i read 7,000 but that might just be
2: maybe there's different numbers that could no i think that's just dead this is like 15,000 dead and missing Oh okay so, yeah. But now you've got an earthquake that just knocked down a bunch of stuff. Mm-hmm. You have a tsunami that took out entire towns. And then you have this this nuclear crisis that's unfolding. And, um, you know, this is going to release in a few days, so we'll have to make do with the information that we have, right?
4: Yeah, unless something, like, really, really big happens between today, which is Thursday, and Tuesday, we might have to come back in and, like, doctor it up a bit. Right. But and this is what we- we're going with for now.
2: Yes. So, Chuck, let's talk a little bit about how, uh, if you walk around a nuclear power plant, what are you going to find? What's going on there?
4: Well, it's pretty easy, actually. Um, and this is something that I didn't know, because I didn't know a whole lot about nuclear power at all right. until this happened. And uh, basically what a nuclear power plant does is it creates one of the oldest models for creating energy, which is steam-powered uh, turbines. Right. Right. Uh, and how they do that, they basically use uh, nuclear fuel, which these days is enriched uranium. Mm-hmm. Uh, the uranium atom split creates a lot of heat. Uh, neutrons flying around also creates is, is created by that process. Right. And this heat boils water in the case of these uh, uh, reactors. These are water-boiling reactors, mm-hmm. and we'll talk about more of the, the Mark One here in a minute. And it produces, basically it boils this water, produces steam. That steam drives a turbine generates power, about a gigawatt of electricity at full power, which is a lot.
2: Right, and um, that is a tremendous amount. And at full power, um, the heat that's being put out, um, Marshall, who wrote a really cool, he's the founder of the site. He's still got it. Yes, yes, he does. He wrote a very um, incredible article in record time called How Japan's Nuclear Crisis Works. But um, uh, he he said that this puts out the heat um, that's akin to about a billion-watt bulb, when yeah. it's at full power, it's hot. the thing is, obviously, you don't always need your nuclear reactors to be running at full power. No. So um, what you do is you modulate how much heat is being put out by um, using what are called control rods. Yeah, sort of like the throttle on your gas. Right. But yeah, instead but of... Yeah. <laughs> but the, uh, the a control rod is basically something like um, maybe a boron-enriched length of metal that is inserted into the fuel rod core. Right. And if you pull it out a little bit, then it heats up. If you push it in a little bit, the it heats down. So in and, and by heat, I guess I could say it powers up and it powers down. Right?
4: Yeah, because it's attracting the neutrons. Right. That's and the what... neutrons are what basically make the splitting of the atom happen. And that's uh the problem there is it's self sustaining. So if you didn't have these control rods, it becomes, you know, its own living Reaction. Well, and it, it'll just, it would just keep going.
2: As, right, it would keep going. As long as you can, can, as long as you could keep it cool, it'd just be running at max power all the time. Yeah. Right? Now, when an earthquake hits, one of the um, fail safes designed into any nuclear reactor is that the control rods are going to get jammed in all the way, which is called scramming. And when the um when the reactor is scrammed, all the control rods are shut down. Yeah. All the, the um fuel sure. rods are shut down because there's these control rods just accepting all the neutrons. And like you said, the neutrons are the active ingredient in nuclear fission because they're just making all the atoms yeah. in the surrounding area unstable, right? Yeah. But it's important to point
4: out that even when they're fully inserted and it's shut down, it's still creating heat. And here's the it's problem a small that we're amount of heat, like. but it's enough heat if left unchecked to potentially cause what's called a meltdown.
2: Right. So this heat that you're talking about, Chuck, is called decay heat. Yeah. And I've read places where it lasts a week. I've read that it lasts for a year. And I think it actually lasts for a year. It takes a year for a fuel rod to actually shut down, to to go and to cool a down. cold shutdown state. Wow. Where, like, it doesn't need to be cooled any longer with water, right? Wow. So uh, when you scram something like they did on March 11th, it's not just going to cool down right away. And that's the problem that we're dealing with right now is this decay heat, which, like you said, is still it's, its a ridiculous amount of heat, and it requires tons of cooling, right? Yes. Which normally should be fine because the Daiichi plant with reactors one through four have cooling systems and lots of them, right? Yeah, it's a
4: closed loop. Uh, so what happens is the water boils and creates a lot of pressure. Uh, the pressure is released via steam. Uh, and the steam actually gets cooled, condensed, and reused like right. a closed-loop air conditioning system. Sure. Not a whole lot different. And uh, the water is recirculated. That water is recirculated back through the system with these electric pumps. Right. And those electric pumps are the key to keeping everything cool. And the problem, uh well, we'll, we'll get to the problem. Um, they have a lot of fail-safes in place because, you know, they don't just plug the pump into the wall and say, all right, we're good to go. Right. Because that would be bad if the power went down. Uh, there are backup electric pumps. There are backup. Uh, if if the power goes down, you can actually. Because um, I believe it's using its own nuclear power to generate to operate right. these pumps. This at first, is a,
2: this is an electricity generating nuclear power plant. So right? it's running itself. But right.
4: once the plant shuts down, which is what they did, they say, okay, we can grab electricity from the grid. Right. But the grid shut down. Yes, that earthquake is bad.
2: shut the grid down too. Pretty much right after the yeah. um, control rods were scrammed into the into the reactors.
4: So they have another backup. They're like, alright, we got these diesel generators, which are, diesel generators are great. They do a great job. Uh, tsunami comes in, mm-hmm. water on top of electrical, or I'm sorry, diesel generators, uh, makes them to not operate.
2: Yeah, they were submerged. They weren't designed to operate in submerged conditions.
4: And then they said, all right, we've got all these backups in place. The final backup we have is a battery system. Yeah. Battery system kicked in. It worked great. But the problem is it only works for a little bit of, you know, like how many hours? I don't know if it said. A few. Several hours. Yeah. Because the idea is that the battery system is in dire emergency until you get the grid back going, which shouldn't take that long.
2: Right. Um, Now, also... Transport, uh, transportation was knocked out supply routes are knocked out yeah there's no power they try to get
4: more diesel generators there but they just couldn't get them in time
2: right um so we have a nuclear power plant without power to run these cooling systems and these are boiled water reactors which means that the water um you know like you said chuck it it gets its Energy, or it creates electricity by boiling water. Yeah. Now these fuel rods are so hot, even with this decay heat, that the moment water hits them, even boiling water, the boiled water is keeping them cool. They're so hot. Yeah. They just have to remain underwater. Let's just keep them underwater. That's the key. Uh-huh. The problem is, is they create tons of steam, and that steam is what is what runs the turbine. And then after it l- exits the turbine, like you said, it's condensed and then reused as coolant right right but if the the, those pumps aren't working all it's doing is producing steam boiling off water and basically getting rid of the the only coolant source they have
4: yeah and if water gets hot enough it actually something called uh, thermolysis takes place and that's when it breaks down into uh, constituent hydrogen and oxygen atoms or in this case um, hydrogen gas right which Really, really explosive.
2: And that's that's actually a pretty normal byproduct of even, like, the proper functioning of a boiled water reactor plant. Yeah. So they have procedures in place to vent steam normally, but they burn the hydrogen off in a slow, controlled burn right. when they're venting it right. to, to reduce radioactivity and to, you know, keep explosions from happening. Sure. Now, you may be wondering, why would they design a system with that uses water, to cool, and and nothing else. Right. The the point, the the whole reason that somebody ever designed the Mark One or Boil Water Reactor is that it's it actually has a failsafe built in. The fact that it uses water as a coolant uh-huh. and what's called a neutron modulator, right. which keeps that thing from going like out of control past you know just a sustained max power nuclear fission right. is whatever you're using as a nu- neutron modulator uh-huh. or moderator I'm sorry so as long as the neutron moderator there you can have fission nuclear fission mm-hmm. but if the if you can't get the control rods in in time right and the coolant goes away the the fuel actually won't be able to continue in a fission state because the neutron mod- moderator is not there right so you don't have the coolant but at least you don't have a meltdown um, from nuclear fission, right. or, which is really horrible, right? So that's why they have this boiled water reactor. But the problem is this water served as a failsafe and it's Achilles' heel.
4: Uh, and in this case, Josh, the hydrogen gas we were talking about, the normal reaction, got worse because the water boiled away. These fuel tubes were now exposed to air. Right. They got really, really hot and started cracking. And uh, the little uranium fuel pellets, I think they're the size of a Tootsie Roll. Is mm-hmm. that right? Mm-hmm. Uh, they overheated and, and cracked and allowed water to get in there, and water's not supposed to be in there. No. And that's where you had this massive hydrogen gas explosion. Right. And I think, was it one of them? Yeah, reactor for Or four. two of them. I think it was several different reactors had this explosion within the reactor building itself. It wasn't like the whole thing exploded. It was, it was contained within the building.
2: They hope. They think. Right. Not really.
4: Exactly. So we're still getting news at this point because... They, there's a small number of people, you know, on the ground. Right. And they're not all like on the phone with Anderson Cooper. Right. So the information on the inside isn't that readily available right now.
2: So there were there were several explosions, Chuck. I think it was like reactors 1 and 3 had explosions from this hydrogen gas. They were venting it. They didn't burn it off properly. Right. And the the hydrogen built up and up and up and um Remember, you know, you need to keep these things wet. You have to keep them underwater mm-hmm. under any circumstances whatsoever. They have to be cooled constantly. They have to remain underwater. So, without these backup generators, without the um, battery power generators, without their normal electricity, without anything, uh-huh. they finally decide we need to flood these things with seawater, boron enriched seawater. And it was yeah. a chemical reaction between the seawater and the hydrogen that caused these explosions. Oh, it was? Yeah. Wow. Which, we should say, this is very, 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 very important. Th- that was a conventional chemical explosion, right? Yeah,
4: it was not a nuclear bomb.
2: Right. It's not, it's not possible for a nuclear reactor to blow up like in a nuclear explosion. It's not no. possible.
4: The danger, like with, Chernobyl and anything is is leaking radiation. It's not like a, a Hiroshima type of event.
2: Right. So that happens. Um, to, to create a nuclear bomb, what you have to do is take um, radioactive material in a subcritical state, which is like w- what you might have in your front pocket right now, Chuck. Right. Right? It's just plain old lump of uranium. Who cares, right? Right. And you have to explode it so fast to create a chain reaction that uses up all of that subcritical material, that it skips over the critical stage and goes right into supercritical. Right. The precision that that requires makes it that there's probably like five people on the planet right now that know how to build a nuclear bomb like that. Right. You can't just do that with fuel. The big threat is the melting of the fuel. Right? Right.
4: And so they flooded it with seawater, to which ruins the reactors forever, by the way, we should mention. But that's a better scenario. And apparently, these are 40 year old reactors that were not on its last legs as far as they were about to break, but they were near the end of their operating lifespan. Do
2: you want to hear something horrible? No. Reactor number one went online on March 25th, 1971. Uh So it should have gone, it should have been decommissioned on March 25th, 2011.
4: Oh, really? There was actually
2: a date? There should have been, but apparently TEPCO applied for and received a 10-year extension on its operating licenses for those. Interesting. Yeah.
0: Zigazoo, a social network for kids. Download the Zigazoo app today.
4: So, what, 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 we have some information here. What does this all mean to the world at large?
2: Well, here's the big problem. Like we said, the, the fuel isn't going to explode, but it's going to melt, right? And you said, Chuck, that these little fuel pellets in the fuel rods are like the size of a Tootsie Roll. Yeah. And about the shape, right? Right. If it melts, if this st- when this stuff hits air, it begins to melt, and if it melts, it will no longer be able to be cooled because it's going to be a big flat, dense glob of nuclear fuel that's melting and collecting inside of this containment vessel. Right. So the operative word is containment vessel. Right. This extremely hot nuclear fuel that's forming a pool can conceivably melt through the containment vessel. Yeah. And once that happens, if it when it encounters the concrete barrier, this which is like the failsafe of this it it should not be able to melt through that. It's possible it could, and if it does, then you have you have nuclear fuel in the environment. Yeah, and that's when it's it's beyond catastrophe level.
4: Yeah, and that's a containment vessel that's completely functional and intact, and we don't know what kind of damage these explosions have caused, they might be compromised from the inside mm-hmm. to make containment even more difficult. Right. Who knows at this point?
2: So the the explosions were kind of um, jarring, you could say, right? The explosions at reactors one and three. Yes. There was a fire at um, reactor four, um, but apparently one of the big problems is a bunch of spent fuel that's no longer being cooled at reactor two. And while when this fuel melts... It, it can catch on fire. So vapor is bad enough. Right. But if it catches fire, smoke is what's really going to get you. It, it will create and carry further um, radioactive par- particles mm-hmm. that um, has a much longer half-life than the stuff that's going to come out in the vapor. Right. That's the threat. That's a big threat. It is a big threat. Uh,
4: so we mentioned that it was the uh, Mark I boiling water reactor that, w- that was over there. Um, GE made these, General Electric, in the 1960s. They went online in, I think, 71, you said? Yes. Which is a long time ago. Uh, the United States has 23 of these reactors right now at 16 locations, uh, including uh, Oyster Creek in New Jersey, Dresden near Chicago, Monticello near Minneapolis, uh, no reason to freak out right now uh, because, well, here's the deal. These these Mark I boilers are, uh, be- are under scrutiny right now. The New York Times ran a piece about these apparently in 1972. Right after they built these things, they identified weaknesses and said, hey, we should discontinue this because uh, there's some safety risks. Uh, one of the safety risks was a smaller containment design, which they said in 1972 might be more susceptible to explosion and rupture from a buildup of hydrogen. Wow. So that seems to be what happened here in Japan. Uh, obviously GE's not on the hook or anything. They, you know, once you take control of your nuclear power plant as a nation, it's yours. And it's not like you can call up GE and say, hey, jerks, you know, what about all this? So Japan was responsible for, you know, care and up, up, upkeep of their own thing. Uh, And apparently the Mark 1s in the United States have undergone a lot of modifications over the years, uh, one of which is a change to the Taurus, which is a water-filled vessel that encircles the uh, primary containment vessel. So there's all these things in place uh, in the 70s and 80s that the U.S. put in place at our Mark 1s that they say will prevent something like this. I don't know what was uh, going on in Japan, if they were modified at all over the years. I'm sure that will all come out.
2: Well, apparently it's, it's starting to. Apparently, some um, at least one GE engineer for the Mark One resigned um, because he thought the Mark One was so flawed, and apparently GE wasn't doing anything about it. This was in the early seventies. Yeah, but um, some GE whistleblowers um, blew well blew the whistle on the Fukushima plant um, because apparently they falsified records before. Really? Um, they um, they used dishonest practices in um, monitoring their own radioactive output. Right. And there was a, a lack safety culture, basically, by by the um, company's own admission.
4: This is interesting to see what ramifications is going to have on nuclear power, because there was a pretty good track record for a couple of decades, and a lot of people...
2: It's starting to come around again.
4: Well, yeah, and saying this is actually a green uh, fuel-producing technology, because it doesn't produce uh, carbon, and... Uh, We got a good track record, and it's pretty safe now. And these things are like super safe; they can withstand all these different things. What they couldn't withstand was a combination, in Japan's case, of these things, right, like earthquakes and tsunamis.
2: Well, Chuck, it had a good twenty-year run where it was starting to like gain traction again. Nuclear power was, yeah, um, because it was trying to emerge from the shadow of Three Mile Island, right? The the um, partial fuel melt. Which is the correct term? Meltdown is not actually used in the industry. We should say. Oh, really? Yeah, but partial fuel melt uh, in 1979 in Pennsylvania.
4: That's right, and that was like you said, Three Mile Island, which is categorized as a level five mm-hmm. uh,
2: disaster. Which had it had local consequences. It was like the fuel melted and pooled, right? But it didn't um it didn't escape the containment vessel, but some radioactive material was released into the surrounding area, right? But it scared the tar out of everybody. Yeah, well, China syndrome didn't help much. Yeah, that, that's true, too. Um, and so this
4: uh, uh, disaster in Japan right now is categorized, I've seen it as a 6, mm-hmm. I've seen it as a 5, depending on who you ask, but either way, it's it's not a good situation, obviously.
2: Right. So um, w- what we do know is that as it stands right now, at least, it's not a Chernobyl. And Chernobyl was a level 7, which is as bad as it can get. Yeah, and Chernobyl was a different scenario as well. Definitely. So um, there were a lot of differences. Remember we talked about water being a neutron modulator? Yeah. Well, Chernobyl's design used water as a coolant but had graphi- graphite as a neutron modulator. Um, when their system failed, the graphite caught fire right. and spewed radioactive smoke, which you'll remember is the worst stuff to have, right. into the atmosphere for 10 days before they got a hold of it. Yeah, and they also tried to keep it quiet, which isn't. Uh, wise move when you're talking
4: nuclear meltdown. No, it's not. And by all indications, Japan has been very forthcoming.
2: Uh, here, or there, trying to get good information out. Oh, really? They kept this. They kept the fire at um, reactor four um, quiet, quiet for for uh, enough hours that it ruined their credibility, basically. Oh, really? Yeah. So no one's quite sure. Plus, Japan's like, we just need a 12 mile radius between 12. 12 miles get out of there, 12 and 19 miles seal up your home. Right. And the U.S. is like, we say 50 miles, and any American that shows up at Narita Airport gets a free flight out of here. Really?
4: Yeah. So the Japanese are probably saying, uh, listen to the guys in America right no, now. No,
2: they're not broadcasting it. Well, like, no, no. No American citizen yeah. is getting broadcast over there.
4: Well, the citizens, if they knew this.
2: Right. What about Facebook? And social media. I, I'm sure it's getting out like that, but apparently, like the Japanese media is, they they're known to not really criticize the government. It's just not their culture.
4: Yeah, I got a really good friend in Tokyo, and he's uh, gone to Osaka right now with his family, mm-hmm. two small kids. He's not trying to be panicky, mm-hmm. but he's also got two small kids, and he's just kind of playing it safe right
2: now. Right. So um, let's, we should talk about radiation, I guess. Yeah, it's actually small kids that are at the the biggest risk about this. Always are. Um. With radiate how do you measure radiation, Chuck?
4: You measure it, Josh, with a unit called a, a millisievert, and it measures the absorption into the human body specifically, right. not like how much is in the air.
2: This is how much you're absorbing, how much
4: is dangerous to you.
2: So uh, you can measure it in mil- millisievert or microsievert, but the one that's like when you get to one sievert, which would be a 1,000 millisieverts or a million microsieverts, um that's when you are in big trouble yeah, immediately. Yeah, there's 1,000
4: microsieverts in a millisievert. And then how many millisieverts in a sievert? 1,000. A 1,000. A yeah. Okay.
2: So one sievert, I think, gives you a 10% chance of dying in 30 days. And it's that's just bad. That's ridiculous exposure. I don't think anybody's recorded any levels like that, right? Yeah. Uh, but let's put this into
4: perspective. Um, right now they're saying in... Uh, you you're probably hearing on the news like 167 times the average annual dose that a human gets cuz we get radiation i think americans get 6.2 millisieverts a year mm. through uh medical diagnostic procedures uh, dental x-rays
2: flights flying s- yeah, in flying, an airplane smoking yeah going through those uh full body scanners
4: smoking one and a half packs of cigarettes a day 13 uh, millisieverts per year
2: i am radioactive yeah, well, you're
4: you're getting it out of your system, buddy. Yes,
2: I am, but I still probably am because radioactivity is cumulative, which is why they, they uh, break really? it up into um, millisieverts per hour or millisieverts right. per year. Right, right, right. Because after a, a little bit of time, your body can process this stuff or the half-life of it is spent and it's not deadly any longer, right? Right. But the big problem is when it is still um in full bore a radioactive material and and it's absorbed through your skin. You can breathe it in, you can get it in through your tongue, mm-hmm. your ears, your eyes, your hair, everywhere. Yeah. You can you can absorb this radioactive material. Um and apparently one of the biggest threats or the biggest known threat is um like I said earlier, Iodide uh one hundred thirty one, right? Iodine, right? Iodine 131. So
4: that's important because iodide is actually uh, counteracts the effects of radiation, and people are snapping this up. Apparently, drugstore.com is sold out of iodide right now. Right. And so- fake iodide is even being sold. There's warnings now about buying fake iodide.
2: I know, and people are... Um- Eating iodized salt and the some, I think like the Salt Council came out and said that's not going to do anything for you. The reason um, people are eating iodide and buying iodide salt tablets, which they should, frankly, be selling or sending them, not selling them, sending them to Japan. You don't need them here in the U.S. They actually do need them in Japan. Yeah. Um, with iodine one thirty one, it's a um, it's a radioactive byproduct of nuclear fission, right? Yeah or uranium specifically. And when you absorb that, your thyroid gets this big, fat, heavy dose of it. And the thyroid is responsible for some very fast-dividing cells. So once a cell is compromised in your thyroid that radioactivity is going to spread like gangbusters through your body, especially if you're a kid, Mm -hmm. because you have faster than normal dividing cells anyway, right? Yeah. So that's why thyroid cancer um, tends to go up in cases of radioactive exposure. Right. Um, If you take iodide, your thyroid actually is going to get as much iodide as it can, but it it has a saturation level. Right. So if if you expose it to iodide, Uh, before you're exposed to radioactive iodine-131, your thyroid's going to be full up and be like, sorry, no more room for iodine here, radioactive or otherwise. And even better, iodine-131 has a half-life of eight days. So all you have to do is basically make sure your thyroid's full of iodide for eight days and you're set. Right. And uh, if
4: you're worried here in the U.S., um, there's been stuff on the news about the, the radioactive plume crossing the ocean, apparently the the nuclear submarine, the Ronald Reagan, cruised right on through it the other day, and the material was removed with soap and water, and it's contamination-free. And they said basically the steam that's coming across the ocean is less dangerous than living in Denver, Colorado for a year because when you live at high altitudes, you have less atmosphere to block radiation. And just living in Denver, Colorado means you have more radiation than the average American. Right. Plus, but it's still a very small amount. So, I'm not saying people in Denver shouldn't be like, oh, I need to move.
2: Yeah, right. Exactly. They're also, that's um, not factoring in crime, even. You get hit by a bus, you can get shot in Denver. Yeah,
4: exactly. Or if you're a smoker, if you go to the dentist and get your head x rayed, it's like you, you get radioactive uh, radioactivity as a human being and a little more so as an American.
2: I think that, yeah, I think we're, I think the uh, media is fanning the flames of us losing our perspective. As far as radiation hysteria goes. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, what else is there, Chuckers?
4: Well, uh, this was just off the news wire about 20 minutes ago. They uh, said that they have picked up some small amounts of radioactive material in Sacramento, but it was minuscule, is what they're saying, not harmful to human health. And so people on the West Coast don't need to be freaking out at this point from what we can tell. so uh, People in Japan should be worried, yeah. but they're even saying in Japan, like, you know, let's see what we can do here. You don't need to be leaving, leaving the country on mass.
2: Yes. If you um, hear a report that there is radiation coming our way, ask, what's the level? If it's in microsieverts, I would advise you not to worry. If it's in millisieverts, start to wonder exactly how many millisieverts. If it's um, 100 or less then you are within EPA standards for radiation exposure. Uh, But you should probably consider maybe getting out of town for a little while. Um, But I think uh, maybe keeping a calm head and not buying up all the iodide tablets in the world is probably a good idea at this point.
4: Yeah, i got one more little factoid that's interesting for all the uh, news agencies that are fanning the flames. Apparently, Grand Central Station, New York City, the granite there and uh, the uranium-laced stone used at the U.S. Capitol building supposedly give off enough radiation that they would not pass a nuclear power plant's licensing test. So they're pretty strict with the licensing. People walking around Grand Central Station aren't in danger of dying from nuclear radiation, so that just kind of puts it in perspective.
2: Or are they? (laughs) I wish we had that law and order do the yeah, that wrestling. was appropriate. Well, I guess that's about it. Do you have anything else, Chuck? No. No? Okay. Hopefully you guys have a better understanding of what's going on there. I know I do. Um, our hearts and minds are with everybody in Japan. Uh, keep uh, keep thinking of them. Maybe send some money. Maybe yeah, send some iodine.
4: Send some life straws. Apparently live straws are being sent over there uh, in uh, some of these rescue boxes.
2: Yes. Cool. I saw that, too. Uh, And There's always Red Cross, right? Yes. Um, And I guess since that's about it. Oh, if you want to learn more, type in Japan's nuclear crisis in the handy search bar at HowStuffWorks.com. It will bring up um, just a really great overview of what's going on over there. Um, And since I said handy search bar, it's time for listener mail.
4: Yeah, Josh, I thought it would be appropriate today. You asked um, a few weeks ago about... Uh, if you're involved in a program that's helping the world out, send it in. We've got a few of these, and we're reading them periodically. And this seemed like an appropriate podcast to do so. So uh, this is from Paul C. in Canada. And uh, he's involved in a program in northern Canada, um, helping to start up a project with a group of First Nation folks who are being super proactive about reclaiming and protecting their culture and language. The, uh, and it's spelled T-L-I-C-H-O. So I'm going to go with Licho or Licho. I think that's good. I'm probably wrong. Are uh, concerned that their traditional knowledge and ways of life are not being passed on to their young people who are leaving to find jobs and go to college. In response, they are creating a program to hire some of their dedicated young people for the summer to learn their traditional ways of life. Uh, We are looking for some funding to get the program off the ground. We have applied to an organization called Small Change Fund. Uh, It struck me that you folks have a sizable Canadian brigade in your Stuff You Should Know Army. And I'm hoping that you can help me spread the word about the Small Change Fund. I'm, of course, biased toward my program, which is the Lichco Summer Culture Education Program.
2: That sounds like a good program.
4: But the Small Change Fund website as a whole is really full of great, worthwhile social and environmental programs, all looking for small amounts of startup funding, less than five grand. Uh, if you could mention the Small Change Fund website, uh, that is smallchangefund.org, to your Canadian fans, and everyone, actually. I will gladly take you guys fishing and give you all big high fives when you come up to Yellowknife NWT, which I think is
2: Northwest Territory? I think it is.
4: It's my guess. And uh, do a podcast on the Northern Lights or work how caribou migration works or how to survive in negative 40 degrees or some other such Northern thing. So that is from Paul C. and that is the smallchangefund.org. And his program is the T L I C H O. Summer Culture Education Program.
2: So uh, stop by and visit. Sounds like a good program. Yeah. Thank you. That's Paul C., huh? Paul C. Thanks, Paul. Good idea. Um, if you have a good idea or you have a good idea on how to help Japan, how about that? Yeah, specifically. Go on our Facebook, stu- uh, facebook.com slash stuff you should know. Tweet it to us, um, S-Y-S-K podcast, or send us a plain old email to stuff